In this episode of the Latino Business Report, we will discuss the U.S. labor shortage crisis and its impact on businesses nationwide. We'll explore a surprising solution gaining support among Republican governors, their endorsement of President Biden's efforts to expand work opportunities for immigrants through parole and work authorization. According to the U.S. Department of Labor, in 2023, 41% of crop farmer workers lack legal work authorization highlighting the urgency of addressing this labor shortage. Even if all unemployed Americans found employment, there would still be approximately 4 million jobs that would need to be filled. Our country lacks enough workers to meet the demand. In this episode, we will also explore policy considerations and exemptions that could allow President Biden to temporarily grant work authorization to undocumented immigrants, addressing the labor gap. Join us for an insightful discussion on this evolving issue with significant consequences for the U.S. economy and workforce. Our broken immigration system demands immediate action, given the economic and humanitarian emergencies at stake. Welcome to the Latino Business Report. This podcast covers business, people, and issues of the day from a Latino perspective. The Latino Business Report is brought to you by TAMAC, the Texas Association of Mexican-American Chambers of Commerce. TAMAC is the leading Hispanic business organization in Texas since 1975. Now for your host, J.R. Gonzalez. And welcome to another episode. Folks, today we're going to be talking about something that's out there that a lot of people are seeing every day, and that is lack of employment. We don't have enough people out there to fill all the jobs available in this country. It is becoming a problem. It's becoming a problem for multiple reasons. One, a lot of your favorite places, restaurants, stores, don't have enough employees. The supply chain is being disrupted. And the fact that we don't have people working to fill the slots, pick the crops, build the buildings, pave the roads, take care of the hotels, take care of whatever needs to be taken care of is problematic. There's an organization that is addressing that um, specific issue, and especially um, next month in November, we get, they got a big thing happening in Washington, D.C., and that organization is the American Business Immigration Coalition. And with that, we have two gentlemen here with us today, and the first one I want to introduce is Juan Carlos Serna. Juan Carlos, how are you doing today, my friend? Good morning, JR. Thank you so much for having us on the show. I'm doing well. I was here on the show to talk previously about DACA, but now we're talking about something much bigger than that, which is the need for workers for our entire country. And Juan Carlos, would you mind introducing the uh, other person on the show with us today? Absolutely. I'm pleased to introduce my close colleague who has been at ABIC uh, a little bit longer than I have, uh, James O'Neill, who's the Director of Federal Affairs at our organization. So I'll let James introduce himself. Thanks, Juan Carlos. It's good to be here. And thanks, JR, for having us. Oh, my pleasure. Now, uh, Juan Carlos, you are with, well, both of you are, you're with ABEC. What, what is ABEC and what does it do? For your listeners, uh, ABEC stands for the American Business Immigration Coalition. It's a bipartisan coalition of more than 1,200 employers and business leaders in 19 states, including Texas, North and South Carolina, Illinois, California, New York, Idaho, Utah, any state that you can name, you name it, we are there. And our mission is to promote common sense, workforce and immigration solutions that will grow our economy and that will provide employers with the workforce that they need for their companies to be successful. 
And some of the individuals that you may know are part of ABIC, such as Woody Hunt, the senior chairman of Hunt Companies in El Paso, Texas. Uh, Al Cardenas, the former chairman of the Florida Republican Party. And uh, also Sam Scott, the former CEO of Ingredient Incorporated. So we're all across the country and our mission is to provide employers with the workers they need, but also to provide immigrants with that certainty that they need to be productive and to be able to uh, provide for their families. Okay. You said coming up with common sense solutions. Isn't that happening now in Congress, in common sense? Well, if you look at Congress, unfortunately, <laughs> Congress does not have any common sense. None at all, especially what's happened with the House speakership. Yeah. Okay. I kind of threw that one out there just to throw it out there. Uh, let, let's kind of roll up our sleeves and get into this a little bit. Um, James, can you tell us about what type of shortage are we actually facing in this country right now when it comes to um, employees? Yeah. So according to a United States Chamber of Commerce report from last month, if every single unemployed person found a job today, there would be about 4 million jobs left over uh, unfilled. And so that gives you a picture or a piece of the picture of, of the problem that we're facing. It is in every industry. Uh, most folks that I know, their favorite restaurant has changed hours uh, or is seating fewer people or they're seeing longer wait lines because of a staffing shortage. Uh, folks that are building new homes are finding that it's more expensive and taking longer because there aren't the contractors to complete the work. Uh, folks in big cities are probably experiencing more potholes because there's not the folks to uh, fill in the potholes and build our infrastructure. Uh, in farm work, um, we are seeing prices of agriculture goods go up. And this month, the United States, for the first time in history, is slated to become a net importer of food as opposed to a net exporter, meaning we're relying externally uh, for the food that Americans need to survive. So the, the consequences are drastic and the consequences are being felt in every single sector of the economy. James, let's back up a little bit. So the reason that, we're, that the United States is now having to import food is not because we can't grow it or provide it. We just don't have anybody to go out in the fields and work, work the fields or pick it. That's right. I mean, if you ask any farmer in this country, they'll tell you we have the best soil. We have some of the best growing conditions possible. Um, but the, the reality is that when labor is an issue, when you can't find labor, you do one of two things. You have to get out of farming or you have to plant a crop that's less labor intensive. And so more folks are switching to row crops and more farmers are switching out of specialty crops. Fewer farmers are growing vegetables, tomatoes, um, and apples, uh, fruits and vegetables are very labor intensive crops. Um, livestock is very labor intensive. So you see folks getting out of that kind of farming and switching more to row crop farming. So if they're getting out of that farming, that means we have to import those products. That's exactly correct. And is the cost of importing, I would assume that the cost of importing those, those that produce or those products is going to be higher than us actually producing them here in the U.S.? That's correct. Uh, and it's not just a cost issue either. Um, the United States has some of the strictest food safety standards and fruit growing conditions. We have Which they the, should. Exactly. Yeah. We have some of the strongest worker protections uh, when it comes to our farm workers in the United States uh, when compared to other countries. So, 
you know, this is this is an issue on a, on multiple different fronts. When the food is being grown outside the United States, we can't ensure its safety in the way that we can ensure it. We can't ensure the safety of the folks that are picking it uh, the way we can in the United States. So it's a it's a multifaceted problem, um, and the labor shortage is at the center of all of it. Okay, I know we've always been kind of um, short on labor, but. Why the big influx now? Why is there just such a huge void in um, in the labor market? I'm happy to jump in on that one, Jr. In regards to why is there such a influx on you know Im- immigrants from across the country, across the world, and across Latin America, it's because across Latin America you're seeing authoritarian governments in Venezuela and Nicaragua and Cuba, and migrants are coming uh, from those countries. Uh, to United States to work and to provide a better future for their families. Add to that the rise of corruption, of violence across that sector of the world, and you have this perfect storm for migration uh, to the United States of people coming here to work. They're not coming here for handouts. They're not coming here because you know they just want to take a vacation in the United States or they want to change this, the country's culture. They're coming here to add value to our country and to our economy. And so you have immigrants uh, already here in the United States who've been here an average of 10 years or more, in some cases 20 years, who are an example of what immigrants are able to provide the country uh, when you allow them to come to the country and to be in industries like construction, like agriculture, like hospitality. They add to the needs that we have as a country. I mean, somebody has to construct the roads, somebody has to uh, take care of the elderly, and somebody has to pick the crops, like James says. So there's a mismatch between this country's policies on immigration because it's it's mostly about enforcement. They just want to enforce the laws at the border. But then on the flip side, there's no legal pathways for people to come into the country. So what you end up getting is people piling up at the border, trying to get in, going through the dangerous trek, the dangerous journey from Latin America through Mexico, which has cartel-based violence and corruption uh, to the border. So that is the mismatch that we have is employers in the United States needing all these workers, but migrants unable to legally get work permits to work for these employers. So we need to change our country's immigration system in order for this uh, match to align between employers and workers. But unfortunately, Congress, as we already alluded, hasn't done its job and has not updated our immigration laws. And that's why we're asking President Biden to expand work authorization and parole for immigrants who already live inside the country but don't have work authorization and to migrants who are newly arriving at our southern border. For those who have actually lived in the country for a number of years, and you gave the example of 10 years, I mean, Juan Carlos, I got to be working somewhere. I mean, it's probably off the books, working, you know, um, getting cash, maybe not paying taxes. I mean, you have you have those folks, and even though with with that number of people we already have in the country, we still have a labor shortage, right? Absolutely. I'll just give you an example uh, here in Texas, where you and I both live. So. Yes, uh, immigrants uh, are working in Texas. There's 1.7 million people without an immigration status. They are working in some of the key industries that are the fastest growing, such as construction, uh, in uh, infrastructure, 
and in healthcare. Uh, and they're actually, they are paying taxes. In fact, they pay over $3.8 billion in local, state, and federal taxes. All of those are going to airports, to our roads, to our schools. But guess what? None of, not a single cent of that, they're not getting that back in Social Security because they don't have Social Security numbers, so they can't access those benefits when they retire. At the same time, uh, these immigrants, they have a spending power of $32.2 billion. That's money that's being ingested and uh, going into our economy. So that, that is the spending power, the consumer power that we're seeing. And back to your question about why there's still a labor shortage. Here in Texas, we have over 745,000 unfilled jobs as, uh, as reported by the Bureau on Labor Statistics uh, since July. So 745,000 open jobs. Compare that to the number of undocumented immigrants in Texas, which is 1.7 million. If we gave work authorization to this population, those 745,000 unfilled jobs, that number would decrease dramatically. So yeah, that's why you know if people get a work permit, they're able to have job mobility and they can go to industries that desperately need them you know, instead of having to work under the table and uh, be subject to, you know, harassment from from immigration agents and also uh, potential labor abuses, too, because when uh, you're undocumented, it's really hard to speak up when, you know, an employer doesn't treat you right. Uh, we all know that, you know, mm -hmm. most employers are good, but there are some bad apples, too, out there uh, who also, you know, abuse and take advantage of undocumented workers. So we need both. We both we need both, uh, you know immigrants to have legal work authorization so employers don't have to face that choice of having to employ undocumented people. Yeah, it can be very abusive. I know of cases where um, somebody will employ a bunch of uh, undocumented people, work them for two weeks solid, just working them to the bone, and then on payday call immigration on them so they don't have to pay them. Um, and that's just, it's just terrible. James, let me ask you a question. You got a lot of folks that are going, we need strong borders. We need to protect the borders. We don't need all these undocumented people here. How would you respond to that? We absolutely need folks here. Uh, you know, I, we keep coming back to this very real problem. Um, you know, part of the reason the labor shortage is so drastic today is because of COVID. Everybody, not by choice, had to leave the labor force, um, except for, uh, you know, a key number of folks in essential jobs. Essential workers were able to keep their jobs and continue working. But a lot of people exited the workforce, some by choice uh, and a lot and a lot of them, um, you know, by the circumstances. Uh, our employment participation or labor participation hasn't yet recovered even from before the pandemic. Uh, so there are fewer people working today than there were before the pandemic. There's been mass resignations. There's been a, a swath of early retirement. Uh, baby boomers are getting to the age where they're starting to consider retirement. Um, and so we do actually need more people. If we're going to solve the labor shortage, we need to be bringing people in. The numbers just don't add up. As I mentioned, if every unemployed person got a job today, there's 4 million open jobs. To me, that and suggests we need to add at least 4 million people. A minimum, because I'm sure that all the people that are unemployed today, not all of them want jobs either. That's right. Yeah. Not everybody is looking to get back into the workforce. 
So as I'm, I'm talking about the consequences of the labor shortage, those are consequences that we get to avoid. There's a great benefit uh, to the American people when we solve this problem. Prices go down. Availability of our agriculture goods in grocery stores goes up. Um, the cost of building a new home goes down. Wait times go down. Availability of your favorite restaurant, right? All, all of those things are the benefit uh, of, of expanding work authorization and getting those folks parole so that they can be legally working here. Now, I understand that. And a lot of folks out there are experiencing the immediate you know, consequence of that labor shortage. But what does it mean for our country, James, or Carlos, who, again, who can never answer this, if this goes on, if, if we have this shortage for another two, three, five, ten years, what's that going to do to our economy? What, what's America going to look like ten years from now if this labor shortage continues? I'm happy to jump in on this one. I just had a meeting with a home care executive who is preparing to grow his home care business so that in about uh, 10 to 20 years, when baby boomers uh, start to turn into their 80s and 90s uh, years of age, uh, they're able to be taken care of. They're able to go to nursing homes and be placed in home care uh, so that they can be taken care of because when you're 80 and 90 years old, as, as you know, JR, uh, from personal experience, uh, it, it's, it's difficult uh, to take care of an elderly, elderly person. And it takes a lot out of you. Wait a minute, Carla. You're saying from personal experience, are you saying I'm 80 or 90 no, years old? No, I'm not saying that, JR. I, mean, I, I, I just okay. know uh, you, you've spoken in the past about a situation you had with your family. So, yes. uh, so you, you know, you understand that it's, it's in the Latino yeah. culture, uh, we tend to take care of our, of our elderly, of our grandparents. Uh, but it's also very common in the United States uh, for Americans to put uh, their elderly in home care uh, facilities where they're better able to be taken care of. So this home care executive is preparing for a, a, an avalanche, a tidal wave of people, of baby boomers turning 80, turning 90 years old, uh, 10 to 20 years from now. And guess what? We don't have the necessary labor force to be able to take care of all, all of these uh, future baby boomer uh, elderly uh, who will be uh, needing to have good health care, who have the need for you know nurses to take care of them. And unfortunately, in that particular industry, the majority of workers there, uh, and I don't say unfortunately, I meant most of them are, are immigrants, but the, the unfortunate mm -hmm. part here is that uh, for the past uh, two years, between 2019 to 2021, uh, unfortunately, immigration levels dropped by 2 million people under the previous administration. So now we have a, a deficit of immigrants who are able to work in industries like home care. So that particular industry is struggling and will continue to struggle for the forecoming decades if we do not provide legal pathways for immigrants to work for home care companies. That's one example. So that particular industry is going to suffer. That means the burden of taking care of our elderly will be on you and me and James. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And and just for the purpose of this conversation, I recognize that the Philippines actually produce and export a lot of nurses. I mean, it's like an assembly line 
over there of, of uh, Filipino nurses coming to the United States working in industries, and there's a there's some sort of agreement between the U.S. and and um, the Philippines for that for that skill set. But as James was saying, we need workers, and there's workers all over the globe out there. It just America for some reason is just being very obstinate about accepting you know people born someplace else into this country. Um, I know there's some good reasons. I mean, I believe in strong borders. Who doesn't believe in a strong border? But to to the political rhetoric, oh, they just want open borders, come in here, take over. It's it's not a matter of anybody taking over. It's just a matter of of the population. One of the things that that I find interesting is this last census showed that for the that the um, non-Hispanic white American actually their birth rate declined for one of the first times. There's a there's a decline in white people being born and of course in the Hispanic population that continues to grow and it's going to keep growing for another decade or two. Um, so as you look at it, it, it's not a matter of, it's just a matter of who's here. Uh, Hispanics tend to be younger, they're childbearing, they're working age. Uh, you're not Hispanic whites or, or older. The African-American um, community has plateaued off. You actually have the Asian community that's growing quicker, faster than the Hispanic community in this country. However, their numbers are still, um, they don't have the the large raw numbers that the Hispanic population does. So the world is changing, and I can't help but feel that a lot of people just don't like that change, and they want to hang on to what it was like, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, and that's just not possible. And the whole issue with immigration, borders, uh, the argument, I go, well, you know, if we had secured the borders, we wouldn't have all these all these drug deaths. You know, the, it's supply and demand. They're coming in here. No, who, nobody's putting guns to people's head and say, take this fentanyl, take these drugs, and then have a possibility of, of overdosing. So, I mean, it happens. But um, let's look back, and, and James, maybe you can attest uh, to this a little bit. But during World War II, we um, reached out to Mexico with the Bracero program, where we imported workers to fill the jobs that uh, to fill the jobs that needed to be filled because a lot of our young men and women were overseas serving in the military. So, is there a possibility for a some sort of along with this parole thing they're talking about? Would this be similar to a, a guest worker program, like a Bracero program? What would it look like? That's a great question. Real quickly, though, I want to go back to something that you were talking about. I think that there certainly are some Americans that feel some anxiety about the world uh, or you know the, the community around them changing. Uh, but I think the vast majority of Americans understand uh, immigration as a human rights issue and understand it as an economic issue, too. Um, so I, I, would, I would just challenge you a little bit to say that I think there are certainly folks that don't want folks uh, that don't want immigrants to come to the United States. They don't want to see anything change. They want to go back in time. Uh, but I also think that there are a vast majority of Americans that, that do understand this as an economic benefit. Um, and the polling certainly indicates that. I think we're up to over 70% of Americans supporting uh, a pathway to citizenship uh, for DACA recipients. Um, it is, it, you know, there's been this groundswell of public support in part, I think, driven by the economic necessity of bringing folks here to take the open jobs. Um, to your question, though, uh, you mentioned the Bracero program. Um, you know, it is true. I think that speaks to the fact that 
all of the systems that we have in place um, that allow or disallow certain folks to come to this country to work um, are all a product of our policy. In the past, we have had policies, individual policies that have worked to a certain extent, right? The Bracero program was successful. Um, folks were able to come to the United States, work, uh, and then bring the money that they earned back home. They were not forced to come here and stay because they wouldn't be, they're not sure if they're able to get back into the United States again. That's part of why we want this parole expansion, this work authorization expansion, is because it would allow folks to get right with the law, be working. It would allow them to go back to their home countries, both for economic reasons to deliver money um, and for humanitarian reasons. You know, I know of folks who have missed the death of loved ones because they were not able to go back home. I know folks who have missed the birth of their children back in their home countries because they weren't allowed to leave the United States. Um, so it is a humanitarian in that way as much as it is an economic issue. Now, along with this this program of, of parole, we're talking about, we're not talking about just going to a work corner and go, you're going to work. But I mean, they will be background checks, they'll be vetted, they'll be they checked out. I mean, this this is a process. It's just not getting... Anybody who comes in the country goes, okay, we're going to give you a job. There is an actual process to the program to make sure that, that they you know, don't have a criminal background, that they're, I'm not even sure what, what all it entailed, but they will be vetted properly. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it just, it just really disturbing to, you know, it, it, it's like cutting off your own nose to spite your face. I mean, if there is a need, if if not only from a humanitarian side, but from an economic standpoint, businesses cannot sustain themselves. I, I mean, right now they're having a hard enough time keeping the doors open, much less growth. To, to, to grow, you have to have more employees. I mean, there's a huge employee shortage out there. This, this, this economy is not going to be able to sustain itself. It's going to end up imploding. Um, Especially here in, um, I mean, not only in the states but Texas, we got a great economy, and I, I really believe a lot of the reason we have such a good economy is because of our proximity to Mexico. And whether like it or not, you know, there's a lot of Latino labor here, and the fact that there are a lot of undocumented folks working. At least they're working. They're working, adding to the economy, um, staying out of trouble, doing what's necessary. A another fact too. Um, and just the fact that I thought I found the other day that I thought was interesting between the years 2020 and 2030, between 2020 and 2030, that decade, 78 percent of all new workers in the workforce will be Hispanic, 78 percent. And that's not even calculating the whole immigration factor. So as we look at it, um, James, what you were saying is that, you know, you believe that most Americans believe that there's something that we need. It just what the what the vast majority of Americans believe and want, of course, we have to get Congress to kind of sign off on that and make those changes. James, you said 70% of Americans support having, like, the DACA recipients and other people giving them a pathway to citizenship. Did I hear you correctly? I would have to double-check the exact number, uh, but I've seen polls with that number around 70% uh, are supportive of DACA recipients getting a pathway to citizenship. And Juan Carlos, you may answer this because, I mean, you're a DACA recipient yourself, correct? That's right. I'm a DACA recipient. I've been a DACA recipient for the past uh, 11 years now. Okay. What is the future of DACA look like right now, Juan Carlos? 
Yes, the future of DACA is not looking so great. So I've been on uh, your show previously talking about how there's a lawsuit against the DACA program. And it's a program that, as I've mentioned before, helps protect individuals who came to the country as children and currently don't have an immigration status. And that's people like myself. And that program is looking like it will be going to the U.S. Supreme Court of the United States as soon as 2025. And we know based on the judge's previous rulings that we don't expect the DACA program to survive. And I think a, a great reason why it's good to, to bring up the DACA program is because I'm an example and the DACA program is an example of what immigrants can do and how immigrants benefit the country when we're able to legally work. Because before DACA was created in 2012, I was undocumented, just like over 1.7 million Texans who don't have immigration status. I couldn't legally work, I couldn't legally drive, and I was constantly looking over my shoulder, thinking about whether I would be deported or not, or whether the next encounter with law enforcement would be the last time I got to see this country and my family. But once DACA was created in 2012, I was finally able to feel confident and free to pursue my career. I was able to become a public school teacher thanks to a DACA work permit, and I was able to really be more comfortable in my own skin and to live my life freely, I was able to travel to places that I've never been able to travel before, such as the Texas-Mexico border. I love going to El Paso, love going to Laredo and the Rio Grande Valley. But that's not something that 1.7 million other Texans are able to do because they're constantly afraid of deportation. So that is why we need President Biden to enact work authorization expansion and allow this population to have that ability to have more mobility, not just job-wise, but also geographically being able to move for another new job, which is a common theme in America is people moving for opportunity. And like James says, it benefits the country because, because of the labor shortage. Right now, employers can't find workers and it, it helps increase uh, public security as well because when you have a population that is not afraid to report uh, crimes in their communities, that makes our community much safer. So DACA is just an example of what we can do. And if the president decides to enact this program, uh, that benefit will multiply uh, many, many times over. For the and country. it's the same respect. And then on the flip side of that, we have a labor shortage already. And if DACA were not to be upheld or something worked out, how many, how many people are on DACA program nationally? Uh, right now, there's 570,000 DAC recipients nationally. Okay, so that'd be another half million people out of the workforce, potentially. Exactly. Okay, that would be terrible for our All economy. Right. Well, let's let's look at this. What is being done, or what can we do to help? Maybe persuade Washington or some of these decision makers to take a good look at this and see if they can't come up with a solution. Absolutely. Right now, the president is is starting his reelection campaign, and uh, we need uh, employers to uh, speak out, to use their voices, to urge the president to expand uh, parole and work authorization opportunities for immigrants to address this workforce crisis. And what they can do to urge the president to do that is by signing our letter to President Biden that now has uh, I think now over 300 signatories, many from te Texas, and thanks to your efforts on trying to get support, uh, JR, 
Uh, we have over 300 employers that have asked the president to use his legal authority to expand uh, this program. And Biden, we know, has the authority under current immigration law to create uh, more expanded programs for work authorization because he's been doing that already with uh, over 500,000 uh, immigrants from Venezuela, Nicaragua, Afghanistan, Ukraine, uh, Haiti, and Cuba. Uh, these immigrants have been coming to the country legally. They haven't had to take the dangerous journey uh, through Latin America and Mexico to come legally to the United States and get a work permit. Over 470,000 of uh, the 500,000 I just mentioned, they now have uh, a work permit and are working in critical uh, industries that uh, face labor shortages, including manufacturing, uh, healthcare, and retail. And so we know that if the president is able to create a program like this, then he should uh, have the ability to create uh, an expanded program for immigrants who've been living here many, many years and for newly arrived uh, migrants. And the last point I'll make here, JR, is that about three weeks ago, uh, the president announced the program or announced the designation of temporary protected status for about uh, 500,000 uh, Venezuelans uh, because of the, the conditions I just mentioned earlier. The authoritarian regime in Venezuela is causing many people from this country to migrate to the U.S., and so the president decided to protect this population so that they're able to legally work in the United States. Uh, so if the president is able to designate uh, temporary protected status for Venezuela, why can't he do it for Mexicans? Over 67% of uh, immigrants uh, who live here in Texas who are undocumented, uh, they're Mexican. We're the largest uh, share of the undocumented really? population. And, you know, we see lots of cartel violence and corruption in Mexico. I mean, you could argue Mexico is uh, not too different from Venezuela. So we should be able to get the president uh, to designate TPS for Mexico, or at least to create some kind of program to allow undocumented Mexicans to legally work. Okay. Now you guys have something coming up in November. You want to tell us about that? Yes. James, you want to take a shot? Yep. Or one of you start off? Yes, happy to. And then James can uh, fill us in. So we are flying to uh, Washington, D.C. on November the 13th and 14th uh, to urge President Biden to expand parole and work authorization opportunities for immigrants. We'll be uh, having meetings with the members of Congress and uh, with President Biden's cabinet and the White House on November the 14th. Uh, it'll be an opportunity for many of you who don't understand uh, how parole and work authorization works. Uh, to learn from experts and from uh, not only you know uh, economic experts but also security experts on how how does this program work? How does the president have this legal authority to create this program? Uh, so we'll be flying to D.C. on those two dates. We're so fortunate to have uh, Tamak on board for this summit, and it will be the start of of a of a big campaign uh, that will culminate hopefully uh, next year. Uh, to try to get President Biden to announce uh, this program, this expanded uh, work authorization program before next year's election. Because uh, to be honest, JR, uh, President Biden uh, needs something like this. He needs to do something like this because he's not doing so well with Latinos and with Mexican-Americans. If you look at the polls uh, from 2020, uh, Mexican-Americans, uh, 6% less Mexican-American voters voted for, for President Biden and Democrats over Republicans. Because Mexicans and Mexican voters are fed up with both parties and with Democrats, too, because they haven't delivered uh, 
work authorization or any sort of uh, path to legal status for immigrant workers. So that that is why we're going to DC uh, in November. And James can tell you all about the many folks that are coming from all across the country uh, for this event. Yeah. And I do want to remind uh, folks that what we're talking about, this this whole ABEC, um, this uh, American Business Immigration Coalition with Juan Carlos and and, J- and James are with, this is a bipartisan, nonprofit organization. So it's not we're picking sides, one party over another. It's just the circumstances, and we're trying to, or they are, and I say we because I'm involved in this because I'm going to go into Washington with you. I appreciate the invitation. Um but, uh, James, how can people find out more about this? What's your website? And tell us about that 5,000-person rally that you guys are, are putting together. Yeah, so you can find our website at avic.us, um, which will link you to our C4 affiliate, AVIC Action, uh, where you can find all the information about the rally. But as Juan Carlos said, it's going to be the 13th and 14th. Uh, November 13th is focused on uh, trainings, keynote uh keynote uh, addresses, uh, panel discussions, uh, to really get everybody on the same page about parole, what the program is, how it can benefit the economy. And then on the 14th, all those legislative meetings that Juan Carlos talked about and meetings with administration, uh, administrative officials. Um, I would also add to that, though, um, that the summit is sort of an exclamation point Um, to a series of actions that are already happening throughout the country in support of this program. Uh, Just this week, uh, there will be events in Michigan and Chicago uh, of various organizations looking to support this work authorization expansion. Um, There's going to be events in Utah and Colorado, um, in Wisconsin, uh, all leading up to that November summit. That November summit is going to be a big exclamation point on a series of events uh, and a really strong launching point for our campaign nationally uh, to culminate in the Biden administration taking this action. Now, you say your your website, ABIC, that's A-B-I-C dot org dot com dot net. What is it? Dot U.S. Dot U.S. So, so it's A-B-I-C dot U.S. That's correct. People can go to there. And this um, 5,000 person march, that's going to be on uh, the 13th? That's on the 14th. That'll be on oh, I'm the sorry, the 14th. Day. Yeah. That's on the second day. And you have people coming in from all over the country. That's right. It's a, a really fascinating to me uh, kind of coalition of organizations, uh, business groups, um, faith groups. It is a really strong and diverse group of folks that are coming uh, to make their voices heard in November. Marching on Washington. In the 60s, I was still too young to do that. But now, as Juan Carlos said, now that I'm in my 80s and 90s, I can probably get permission and go up there and march on Washington. Guys, I will be with you in Washington, D.C. I look forward to it. I want to thank both of you uh, so much for taking the time to be on this uh, this podcast. Uh, my name is J.R. Gonzalez. You've been listening to the Latino Business Report. And I encourage you guys, go to the ABIC um, website. Check them out. If you have any questions, go to uh, latinobusinessreport.com. There's a way to communicate with me directly. I will answer any questions. And more importantly, I hope to see you in Washington, D.C. And let's, uh, let's make a change. Let's get the uh, attention of Congress and the president. And let's get some of these folks working so our favorite restaurant can be open not only a little bit longer, 
but that we could do what's right from a humanitarian process and to make sure that our strong economy stays strong by having the, the workforce that we need. Guys, have a great day. Amen. Thank you, JR.